Our second reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the groom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The word of the Lord. Here we are in John chapter 2, a continuation of our series that started last week in John 1. In John 1, we get uh, Jesus being declared by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God, and then Jesus begins to call disciples to follow him. In the beginning of the John chapter 2, which we just had read by Julian, we find out that Jesus and his mother have been invited to a wedding in Cana, which was about eight miles away. And he goes not just with his mother, but he goes with the disciples that have begun following him. But when they get there, what we find out happens is that they run out of wine in the middle of the festival of the wedding. Now, in order to understand the importance of this, the weight of this, um, if you've never really considered it that greatly, we have to understand a little bit of the difference between modern and ancient cultures. So in the modern world, we find our meaning through individual achievement. And, you know, I could go into the depths of that, but we find our meaning through individual achievement. But in the ancient world, and especially in the ancient Jewish world of Jesus' day, the ancient and traditional cultures put far more emphasis on the community and the family than on the individual. So meaning in life was not found through your individual achievement, but in through being a good uh, child, son or daughter, a good husband, a good parent, a good spouse. It was those family relationships and the community that mattered far more than whatever you achieved individually. And this meant that marriage was very important. Marriage was very important for binding together a community and ensuring the raising of the next generation um, and the caring of one another. And it also meant that weddings and marriage were not about the individual's happiness. They were about binding the community together, ensuring their survival, and raising up that next generation together. So weddings were a big deal. And in a normal wedding, in a village culture in particular, the entire village would be invited and relatives who lived close enough to be able to travel there. Jesus and his mother Mary are probably relatives in some way of the people that are getting married that day. And what we find happened in those ancient cultures is that weddings would last for a week or more. The groom's family put on the wedding. They were meant to feed and celebrate and rejoice all week long, and sometimes even two whole weeks. So these things were whole village celebrations. You have to remember a couple of other things. First, the centrality of community in that ancient world. So this is a big deal for the whole community. And secondly, how rare opportunities for joy and celebration were. 
If you lived in that agrarian culture in the first century in particular, you didn't have lots of days of just watching Netflix or like, hey, we've got a whole week off of school because of snow and some other stuff, so we're not going to do anything. You worked all the time. Sundays were your Sabbath day in order to worship the Lord, but to have a wedding was a rare vacation holiday celebration high point. It was a big, big deal. In other words, the combination of the community, the marriage, the celebration, the whole village, to run out of wine was unthinkable. Tim Keller put it this way, this was not a mere breach of etiquette, but a social and psychological catastrophe, particularly in a traditional honor and shame culture. And so Mary, who's probably helping out with the wedding in some way, tells Jesus, hey, they've run out of wine. She's concerned. She's concerned for the groom and the groom's family. But Jesus dismisses her. He says, my hour has not yet come. But she hears that and says, do whatever he says to the servants. And we read then, starting in verse 6, what Jesus says, or what they say and what Jesus does. Now, there were six stone water jars there, for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some water out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. So these were stone water jars. They were about the size of, if you go out in the hallways, you see these gray trash cans, they're 32 gallons. So about six of those, six large trash cans, the the big bin ones. And he says, fill them to the brim with water. So these were used for purification. You guys have maybe heard something about this. But basically, in the Jewish world, there was a matter of staying pure ritually so that you could participate in the life of the community, whether it was going to temple in Jerusalem or just participating in staying with one another in fellowship close together. You had to remain ritually pure. And there were lots of things that would make you ritually unclean. And part of the traditions involved things like as you entered a house, going through a ceremonial washing of your hands. It didn't necessarily really clean your hands, but it meant that you were taking seriously the the call of God to be set-apart people. And these religious rituals were a part of what they did and mattered importantly to them in that first century culture. It's one of the things Jesus pushes on a little bit because he says, God cares about your heart, not just your outside. He doesn't care just about the religious rituals. He wants to do something new inside of your heart and in your life. But these were very important in that day and age, and Jesus then has them take those six stone water jars, fill them to the brim, and then he says, and then take a cup, dip it in, and take it to the master of the feast and let him taste it. Presumably, the the servants do what they, he says, fills them to the brim, and then they take the cup and they bring it over here, and they're thinking he's just going to taste some water. But instead, of course, we get what happens next in verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the groom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. You have kept the good wine until now. He's astounded. He's amazed. You've kept the good wine till the end? And he's using the good wine almost in a technical term. It must have been something that was known, like, hey, we have this much wine for the week-long festival, so start with this stuff. This is the good wine. 
And when people have had a lot to drink, then give them this. Give them the two-buck chuck from Trader Joe's, right? Like, that's after they've had the good stuff, and they won't know that it's not good anymore. Now, the funny thing is, this guy had actually already had the groom's best wine. So think about it. This is like day four or five of the week-long festival. On day one, he had had the good wine. But now he's having actually a significantly better wine. So the groom had given him the best of the best that he had. And he was probably wealthy enough to have a master of ceremonies, the master of the feast, to have servants. He wasn't just a, a you know, poorer villager. He was maybe higher up. So he has some good wine. But now the master of the feast is like, I don't know what you gave us on day one. This is the good wine. And of course, what's happened is Jesus has taken six giant 30-gallon jars, stone jars, and turned it into the best wine this master of the feast had ever had. And if you do the math on the 20 to 30-gallon containers, there's somewhere between 600 and 900 bottles of wine that Jesus makes. Tens of thousands of dollars worth of wine in our modern era. And if the village was the size of village we would expect, ancient Nazareth was supposed to be about 400 people. Cana was supposedly a smaller village. So maybe two to 300, maybe 400 people are there, 200 of whom are adults. It's basically like everybody comes, there's like a day or two left, and, and each person is given three to four bottles of wine. Every single person. The amount and the quality are extravagant and unnecessary. And we read in verse 11, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. In the Gospel of John, John records seven signs. We'll go through these in the coming weeks. Seven signs that reveal Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the one through whom we find life. This is the first of the signs, and it takes place, according to John, three days after the calling of Nathaniel, kind of in the very early stages of Jesus' um, ministry. This is the very first thing he does, the very first sign. And as several commentators noted, one of the things about your very first sign is you want it to be quintessential to who you are. So if you're going to have the public launch of a company or a political campaign, you want to start your foot out right. You want to like, you know, if you're going to do a job interview, you want to go in dressed and present yourself well. Your very first thing is going to be, this is who I am. I want people to know about this. And what's remarkable is if this is Jesus' quintessential sign, his very first thing that he's like, hey, I want you guys to know what I'm all about. Why was it not the forgiving of the sins of somebody or even the healing of like the paralytic or the blind man, the raising of the dead, casting out demons? There's lots of other things that if we were saying, oh, what's a quintessential Jesus miracle? We'd say, oh, you know, healing the blind, raising the dead, calming the storm. But Jesus creates 900 bottles of wine for a two to 300 person wedding. What is this saying about who Jesus is and what he has actually come to do? In John chapter 20, verse 31, 
John writes something that we're going to come back to again and again because this is John's summary about why he writes the book of John. The Gospel of John is the last of the Gospels that was written in the first century, right around the end of the first century. Most of the other Gospels were written around 50, 60 AD, 20, 30 years after Jesus. This one was written more like 50 years. He's kind of like, all right, the other guys didn't cover some of this stuff, so I've got to cover some of this stuff. I was there. But John summarizes and he says this, the reason I've written this is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. I've written all this down that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in him. So the question we're going to ask this morning as we push a little deeper is in John chapter 2, the miracle of turning water into wine, a very large amount of really good wine, at a wedding, what does this say about who Jesus is? What sort of Messiah he is? What he is doing and and how he has come to do it, and what sort of life he is offering us? So the first question is really just, who is Jesus? And I think one of the things we get very quickly in this is that the sort of Messiah he is, is he is the Lord of creation. We declared in praise Psalm 96, and in Psalm 96, it says that may the the heavens, meaning the sky, and the seas proclaim the glory of the Lord. The trees and the fields rejoice at the Lord. Jesus comes, and his very first sign is to say, I am the Lord of creation. I am the one who has made all things. Water to wine, I made it all and I'm here among you now. Josh Moody, a pastor in an accessible commentary, wrote this, Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all things. That's what he's telling us in this miracle. To move molecules and atoms and change the basic biochemical, basic biochemical of reality of a substance is not difficult for him. And one of the things you'll see is that when Jesus does miracles, What he is doing is actually restoring creation to its intended purpose and place. To heal a blind man is to restore the eyes as they were meant to be. To cast out a demon is to bind Satan as he is meant to be bound. To raise the dead is to give the life that we were meant to always have. To calm the storm is to push away the brokenness and tremors of this fallen and broken world. Everywhere Jesus went, the miracles that he did were not countering creation, they were restoring creation to its intended purpose that we will one day see in eternity. In Eden, this is how it was made to be before the fall, and one day we will experience this, where blindness and brokenness and war and COVID and suffering and loneliness and death and evil will no longer be present. And everywhere Jesus goes as Lord of creation, it's almost like the creation can't help but do what it's supposed to do. The water becomes wine. The second thing we get of who Jesus is from this miracle is that he is the master of the feast, well, the true master of the feast. So the master of the feast, which is listed here, was a role at that ancient wedding, and it was kind of like the party planner along with the head chef along with the MC, They were responsible for making sure the party happened, that everyone was happy, 
that the groom and the bride, the parents, the families, that everyone was where they were supposed to be, he would kind of facilitate the day's events. He was in charge of the whole thing. And his, his goal was to ensure that everyone was happy, joyful, and celebrating. Jesus enters into this situation and through his action says, I am the true master of the feast. In other words, Jesus is declaring through this action, especially as his first and quintessential sign, I've come not just to deal with sin and evil and death. And yes, I have come to deal with these things, but I've come not just to deal with sin and evil and death, but to usher in festival joy to usher in the greatest of the joys of this earth, anticipating the joys of eternity. Jesus is saying, I want you to have life in my name. I have come that you may have joyful life, true life. Think about it. Jesus comes to bring true life for all of us, and it's clearly declared in this act. True life through Christ does mean a bunch of things. One of it is it means that we have peace because our sins are forgiven. So we're no longer dealing with guilt and shame constantly. We're right with God, therefore right with ourselves because our sins are forgiven. Therefore, we have peace. He also gives us hope because we are assured that we are loved and God has a future for us and that love cannot be taken away. So we're no longer bound by fear. We have peace, we have hope, but especially in this miracle, we have joy, deep and lasting joy. There's a deep and lasting joy in Christ. When you come to know Christ and the peace and the hope that He offers, that means that when your circumstances change, you might be sad or sorrowful or even depressed, but you're not crushed. You're not completely undone and destroyed. Jesus is here. And he said, I've come that you may have life. And it's, you know, it's the, we think about it here, what we have in this, in this, in what Jesus does in this miracle is we have religion, this ritual of washing your hands in the water, and it becomes wine, extravagant, amazing, too much wine. And Jesus is saying, I've come that you may have this joy, not just religious action. How is that different than your experience of Christian culture? What is your experience of the church, your view of church? Not, I don't mean like this on a Sunday morning, but the church and Christian culture. Is it more like ritual hand-washing jars? or more like a water-to-wine miracle at a wedding. What does that point to versus what we as Christians often are pointing to? I want you to see this. If you have rejected Christ or you're struggling with trusting Christ, make sure you reject Him for the right reasons. Don't reject Him because you think He's going to take away all the joy of life. There's a joy in Christ and in following Him that doesn't mean you do whatever you want to do, but it is the difference between festival wine and ritual washing jars. Jesus said himself in John chapter 10, I have come that you may have life, that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus has come that we might have life to the full. 
to experience the fullness of life. And He's also come that we may have the assurance of eternal life. You know, wine, especially throughout the Old Testament, wine is one of these descriptions of eternity or the kingdom that God is coming to bring. Israel is in constant... uh, constantly under the thumb of other nations. And in the prophecies, the prophecies give them this hope that God will one day restore their fortunes and wipe away all tears. In Isaiah 25 and Amos 9, we get these descriptions of wine as a part of what God is going to do. So in Isaiah 25, it says, "'On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food.'" a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he goes on to say these famous phrase that says, God himself, as he enters the creation and comes to restore the fortunes of his people, he will wipe away all tears. He will swallow up death. So sin, suffering, evil, and death are done away with, and the sign of that is going to be really good meat and wine. And then in Amos 9, Amos, if you read through Amos, is dealing with justice and injustice. It was one of the, the, the passages or one of the books of the Bible that the civil rights movement went to again and again. And it's what Martin Luther King preached on again and again is that there is a, a vision of justice that God takes very seriously, righting of wrongs, bringing um, equality and healing and hope to the nations. And so, the God of the Bible cares about justice, is going to bring His justice upon this earth. And one of the signs will be when He comes to establish His eternal justice, the mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with it. In the day of the Lord, not only will justice be brought for the whole earth, but your neighborhood creek is going to be running with wine. Seriously? Seriously? What is God doing, and why do we miss that side of the, what He's trying to offer? Through Jesus, the new creation is breaking in. He is setting the world to rights everywhere He walks, and He's inviting us into a life that is enjoying the foretaste of eternity even now. That's what He's doing in this wedding and in all of His miracles and healings. You know, in the uh, Anglicanism, we talk about a sacrament. A sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. And in Anglicanism, in following with the Protestant church, we believe that the Lord's Supper and baptism are the two sacraments of the church, the two ways in which God works through the means of physical, tangible things like water or bread or wine and brings about His grace and healing and presence. But there's also another phrase that's become pretty common um, in some circles today, and it's not a sacrament, but it's something that is sacramental. So a sacramental thing is a physical and tangible part of life that points you to God or reveals God to you. It's, uh, it can be, for some of you, a walk on the beach. At sunset, you're like, oh, I'm seeing the glory and goodness of God. Or it's snow and it's beauty or a really good meal with friends. The food, the community, the laughter, the wine can be sacramental. 
revealing to you that God is truly present and loves you and is with you. When we come to the Lord's table, every week we practice that. That one day, this de-alcoholized wine and these little cardboardy wafers will be rich food and flowing wine. That it is pointing to something, pointing ahead to something that this is obviously a pale foretaste of, but it is pointing ahead. Jesus wants us to experience that fullness of life, the foretaste of eternal life even now. But in the middle of this celebration, Jesus is not experiencing the fullness of joy. He's actually experiencing quite the opposite. We get this in verse 4 when Jesus says to Mary, when she says, hey, they've run out of wine, he says, what does this have to do with me? And then he says, my hour has not yet come. What is he talking about there? Um, The way I've generally read this is my hour has not yet come is Jesus is saying, hey, look, mom, I'm not ready to go public with my offering yet. I, I, I don't want everyone to know that I'm campaigning. I want to see if I get, you know, like, I'm not quite figured out what I'm doing yet. Don't, don't let everyone know I'm the Messiah yet. But Jesus doesn't say, hey, I'm not ready for everyone to know. Instead, he says, my hour has not yet come. Or in some translations, my time has not yet come. But that word hour in the Greek is a technical term in the Gospel of John, meaning John, in writing the gospel, uses it multiple times in John 7, John 8, John 12, multiple times in John 13. And when he uses it, he's talking about something very specific. So when Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, he's talking about something very specific. Let me read in John 12 one of the parts that Jesus says it. Jesus is with, um, he's just entered into Jerusalem, the final week of his life. And he says in chapter 12, verse 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. A few verses later, he says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself to show what kind of death he was going to die. And then in chapter 13, verse 1, when he washes the disciples' feet at the Last Supper, we read, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So when Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, what is he talking about? He's talking about his death, right? He's talking about the cross. (laughs) Jesus is at a wedding thinking about the cross. But think about that. Those of you who are of age and have been to a wedding, your mind goes somewhere when you're at a wedding. If you're at a wedding and you're married, you think about your own marriage and your own wedding. If you're single, you think about your own marriage and your own wedding. Whether it's coming in the future or was in the past, when you go to a wedding, you think about weddings and marriages. Jesus is at a wedding, and he's thinking about his wedding and his marriage. Jesus was never married to a woman, to a person. But the Bible is very clear that the whole story of the Bible is about a wedding. (laughs) It starts in Genesis 2, right, with Adam and Eve. The man and the woman become one. 
they are joined together in one flesh in, in Genesis chapter 2. It's the beginning of God's story working through humanity. But where does it end? In Revelation 19, 20, and 21, in Revelation 19, 6, we find that the story of creation, the story of redemption ends in a wedding. The marriage supper of the Lamb, it's called. When Christ is united with His church in eternal union, when we are in the presence of God forever, the word that's used or the language that's used is that of a wedding, of a marriage. The marriage supper of the Lamb is what it's called, the festival, the marriage supper of the Lamb is brought about because of the sacrificial Lamb. His loss of life His giving up joy gives us the hope of eternal life and lasting joy. As one Old Testament professor is paraphrased as having said, Jesus at this wedding, Jesus sat amidst all the joy of the wedding feast, sipping the coming sorrow, so that today you and I who believe in Him can sit amidst all the world's sorrows, sipping the coming joy. You know, we're going to end today with the Lord's Supper. And as we come to the Lord's Supper, to communion, we are looking ahead to the eternal feast, to to what the Lord's Supper points to. And you may be dealing with sadness and sorrow and loss in your life, but the bread and the wine proclaim to us that there is a coming joy that you can hope in. And find peace in even now. As you take, as you receive, trust that God is pointing you to a day when you will not have that sorrow or loneliness or pain ever again. You know, Jesus wants us to know through this action, not just how amazing he is, but that he loves us. He loves us deeply. He loves us deeply enough to die for us and to give us all we truly need all that we need. Everything we need is in Him. He loves us deeply. He loves us personally. You know, He cared about the honor of the groom and the bride. That's a small thing. What what, what does it matter if they don't, if they run out of wine and they're a little bit ashamed in the community? He actually cares about their issue. He cares about your issues and mine. He cares personally and relationally about all of our issues and needs. And He loves us generously. 900 bottles of amazing wine generously. He wants you to have life to the full, to find a deeper joyful life in Him. John says he wrote the Gospel of John so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and have life in Him. To believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and to have life in Him, you have to follow Him. That means obey Him. Okay? To follow Him is to obey Him. And if you follow Christ and obey Him, it will cost you. Jesus Himself said, if you want to save your life, you're going to end up losing it. If you try to save your own life, you're going to lose it. But if you give it up for my sake, follow me and obey me, you will find true life. But in order to do that, to follow Him, even if it costs us, means we have to trust Him. But Jesus is declaring through this action that He loves us deeply, personally, generously, extravagantly. 
In other words, you can trust him. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning in the midst of the world's sorrows and brokenness, you want to offer us festival wine. You've come to deal with sin and suffering and death. You've come to bear our sorrows and to offer us in its place life to the full. Point us to you, to the sacramental life, to the hope of eternity, and the peace and the hope and the joy that you are inviting us into even now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.